0: Welcome to Diabetic, a podcast where T1D artists and T1D experts come together to bake some bread, and then we break bread with smart and interesting people as we talk through the human in health and technology. I'm Stephen Horrocks, PhD and expert in experiences with diabetes and devices.
1: And I'm Melissa Horrocks. I am a type 1 diabetic artist, baker, and maker of all things.
0: And for this episode, we are talking
1: pizza... Yay. <laughs> and yes, pizza. Pizza night. pizza night.
0: Pizza <laughs> and misdiagnosis. Yes. With Dr. Josh Iddings. It's a fantastic uh, interview. There's a lot of really interesting threads, some that tie back to previous guests as well. Yeah. So we're really excited. Come and join us.
1: Okay. So talking about pizza night, I know a lot of people have pizza nights. Mm-hmm. Um Not like that's a new thing or a new invention, obviously. Yeah. But uh, we started... I'm trying to remember when it started. You said about two years ago. I feel like it was
0: about two years ago because I think it was just a couple of months before things with the pandemic spun out of control. Yeah. And so I think it was early in the year of 2020, like January. Who knows?
1: Time is even more elusive than it has ever been right yeah. <laughs> so um but i we started this tradition of kind of once our kids were kind of into movies more we were like oh let's have a pizza movie night how fun and i don't know you know how it is when you just eat crap pizza all the time and i don't know yeah it's, uh, <laughs> it's just <blah>. yeah, <laughs> so it is what it is
0: it serves a good purpose in fact yeah, you know we we just recently had little caesars and i have Fond memories of little Caesars. It does what it does and it fills that it fills that gap well, frankly, you know, for what it is. But if we oh, were doing man. that every week, gross it's not as good, right?
1: Well, yeah, along with Steve's kind of uh intro into bread making yeah. and obsession, I guess. <laughs> Um, we started doing pizza nights, and it's really fun because it's, I mean, obviously, you know what's going into it, so there's not a bunch of added sugar, which, um, you know, I eating pizza takeout from places, you just never know what's going to happen with your blood sugar, speaking of diabetes. Um, so this has been a great way to, like, enjoy pizza in a more manageable way, hmm. <laughs> blood sugar wise, um, at least, so... We did kind of mathematically figure it out at one point, like the carbs in, you know, pizzas that we would get versus pizza that we made at home. And it I mean, the difference is insane. It's so, astounding. It's I absolutely mean, astounding. There's just a lot of sugar added into the dough and the sauce and mm-hmm. stuff that you don't really, like, know is added in there, but...
0: And part of it, too, is as we've talked about in previous episodes uh, in conversations about how, well, different things that affect blood sugar... Mm-hmm. It's not just carbs either, yeah. and so fats, fats and, proteins and
1: proteins too
0: make a huge difference. And so some of the ways that fats and proteins are in again not only the uh, the toppings mm-hmm. of pizzas from various places, but there are also all kinds of fats and proteins that are part of the makeup of the sauces and, like you said, in the doughs and things that it totally. I mean, it's a wild card. <laughs> yeah, it's an absolute wild card every time. Yep. And so this way. We basically are making a very straightforward bread dough Mm -hmm. or pizza dough um, that we can then decide how we're going to top. And so we have been using a very simple sauce um, that we then are kind of whipping up on the spot and throwing (laughs) on toppings. And it's been fantastic.
1: Yeah, this week was really fun. We let our kids choose their toppings. And it's hilarious because... (laughs) Our kids are way more adventurous than I am because I'm notoriously a picky eater. And so, you know, I am pretty picky, less picky in my adulthood than in my childhood. But I mean, they're putting olives and tomatoes and I mean, all sorts of things on their pizza and it's nuts. And then it's funny when we get pizza takeout, Mm -hmm, it's like mm -hmm. cheese only. I just cheese want cheese only. on there. Just cheese. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. Like so hilarious. So I mean, they're eating better at home, I guess. Than <laughs>
0: takeout. <laughs> and so for uh, for this dough this week, we did something a little bit different than we usually do. Um, and so I'll mention both very briefly. First off, for this week, I thought that we were out of bread flour. <laughs> uh, I used about 200 grams, and the bag was gone.
1: He says thought because our the state of our kitchen is... I mean, we have the tiniest pantry you could imagine. So, I mean, to try and fit <laughs> yeah. anything in there. So anytime we go to the store, it's like, let's reevaluate how to fit everything in here. <laughs> yeah. So we had a bag of bread flour just hidden down on
0: the yep. floor. Down among other bags of all-purpose flour, too, <laughs> for what it's worth. But, um, anyway. so in this bread dough... Uh, pizza dough, we ended up using about two thirds all purpose flour and one third bread flour, um, which most of the time we usually just go bread flour. Um, And there are reasons for that, but it has more protein that produces gluten. And so you get the stretch Mm -hmm. that you want in the pizza dough. Um, And so, but because of that, we used a little bit less water than usual. So they were a little stiffer. And it actually worked out a lot better for the kids. Yeah. Because um, sometimes with that higher water content, you've got to kind of top it quickly. Yeah. And shoot it into the oven um, before the <laughs> dough starts to kind of stick
1: to the peel. I'm imagining Harper like slowly placing olives. Oh. Like, <laughs> come on, kid. Just put one. on the toppings. Just spread them out.
0: One by one meticulously where it needs to go exactly. She needs five tomatoes because she's five.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: And so there are a couple of key kind of parts to the production of pizza in relation to the bread dough that I think are key here. First off, because this is a pizza dough, we usually include a little bit of olive oil Mm -hmm. in the dough. And that's it. That's the only thing besides flour, water, salt, yeast, which are the basic... Four pieces of bread making. Mm -hmm. um, A little bit of olive oil. The other thing is that you kind of need to use a a pretty hot oven. Yep. And something to put the pizza onto and cook it on. And we are lucky. baking steel. Yeah, we're in a position where we have a baking steel. And this was a gift um, from family. And uh, it has been one of the most used tools in our kitchen, <laughs> frankly. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> but it's it's a quarter-inch slab of steel that we put That's in there. awesome. And preheat the oven to 550, so as high as it'll go. <laughs> and we shoot this pizza in there with a peel, and it's cooked in five minutes, and it's perfect. And uh, so pizza has been really, and it's interesting, has been an important part of our kind of Family eating practices, family time in general, mm-hmm. for the entirety of the pandemic, and yeah. so that's a really like really complicated conversation too. That I think has made this a pretty valuable uh, bread experience for us. Yeah. So um, we will put some links to a couple of pizza dough recipes that we have used in the past. Um, our blog is not currently up and running, should be soon, in which case (laughs) we will then be able to upload, uh, kind of put up some, some of our specific recipes.
1: And pizza dough is pretty, um, basic and not that hard to make. Um, I think some people are really intimidated by, I know I like at one point made the pizza dough and Steve like gave me the instructions. I was so nervous. I was like, I'm going to ruin it. But I mean, we use our food processor, yeah, um, which is really bizarre to think about using a food processor to make pizza dough. But I mean, it works great. So
0: thirty seconds. You don't have to have a food processor, seconds.
1: obviously, but you know that's kind of a fun way, different way to think about making pizza dough.
0: Yeah, so blitz it for thirty seconds, <laughs> and that does the kneading, and then you put it in a bowl to rise. So it's super simple. Uh, makes for a nice Friday night kind of take the edge off of the week <laughs> for yeah. us. So. All right. Our guest today is Dr. Josh Iddings. He is an assistant professor of writing and communication at Siena College and has uh, worked inside and outside of writing centers for quite a while. He was coordinator of a writing center, uh, has also directed undergraduate research and has published widely on topics related to literacy generally, but also teaching language and writing in the cl- inside and outside the classroom, as well as, and importantly, uh, cultural studies of Appalachia. And uh, some of that may come into some of our discussion today. But also, he has uh, lived in diagnosis with, with diabetes for some time, and so much of our conversation will likely center around there today. But Josh, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. It's exciting to do this. Yes. And we're excited to have you because there are a lot of really interesting things that you have uh, touched on in emails that I think we need to explore a bit. But I want to start with this first question that we usually like to ask guests, which is, what is your relationship with bread and what is your relationship with diabetes?
2: Yeah, um, bread. Bread for me is, um, I think, um, when I think of bread, I think of just tricky. And maybe that's, that's, that's actually what I think about when I think about diabetes, now that I'm saying that out loud. Um, You know, I I love bread. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't bake bread, but it's one of those things that, um, you know, several years ago, I kind of got fascinated with um, cast iron.
0: Oh, yeah. uh, You're speaking my language, Josh. Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) And then last year, I guess maybe in the last two years, I I kind of started to expand my knowledge of cast iron, and that sort of stuff. And I think. Mm once you kind of go down that rabbit hole, like you can't get away from bread. Um, you right. know, you got to, you got to get a Dutch oven you got to start, <laughs> yeah. know, and then you go down the sourdough rabbit hole and, um, you know, it's, yes. it's sort of never ending. So I haven't gone down that path yet. And I say yet, cause I, I, I know at some point I will, um, <laughs> yes. I, I think bread is, is pretty fascinating. Um, I have brewed beer before. Oh yeah. Uh, so like I'm familiar with, uh, that sort of uh, those ingredients and how like little tiny minute changes can result in different flavors and those sorts of things. So, yeah. Yeah. So cultivating
0: I, the culture in order to kind of give a different effect. Right. Oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah.
2: Um, uh, and you know, I guess in relationship to diabetes and, you know, treating your diabetes and those sorts of things, it's, um, you can think that you've um, set yourself up to have the same sort of quote unquote ingredients for both of those things and see what happens with the results uh, sometimes. So, um, you know, with diabetes, Oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Uh, So you can't always control for all those wild uh, externalities, right? That's right. That's
2: right. Um, You know, diabetes, um, you know, on, on one side of my family, um, I have an uncle who, 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 um, was type one. Yeah. So as a, as a child, he was really, um, great about being open and honest about what it was Hmm. and, you know, why he was, you know, this, this would have been my memories of this would have been in the nineties. So I was like, you know, well, I was born in eighties. So I was, you know, preteen teen teen years. Um, and I can remember him, you know, when we would see him, he would, he would uh, check us with his, you know, his meter.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, he, Prick he your always, finger and do the whole thing. Yeah. And he was always very
2: worried that we would develop diabetes and those sorts of things. So, um, so I was familiar with like, that that was a thing. Yeah. Um, and I, but I'll also say that he he wasn't great at, at controlling his own diabetes and, mm-hmm. and oftentimes didn't. And unfortunately, you know, he passed way too young from, from complications. Mm. Um, and so there was also a kind of fear Yeah, real fear. Mm -hmm. So you know, when I was uh, diagnosed, you know, originally, and we'll get into this, it's it's type two. um, Just that that diagnosis was very daunting for me um, because I had I had seen what it had done to him, Mm -hmm. Um, and so so a lot a lot of fear uh, uh, around it. Um, And I think it's it is it is uh, can be a kind of scary disease. um, And and. but, uh, you know, these days, um, uh, my gosh, I guess that diagnosis was in 2006. So these days, I hmm. you know, I, I use a pump and I use a, a CGM, a glucose monitor. And so um, it's a lot less scary
0: hmm.
2: in some ways. Yeah. Um, and I can feel more, uh, uh, you know, mostly in more control and feel like um, I have some agency and some some choice in how things go. Yeah. Again, uh, I suspect like like bread. Um, you know, I, I I kind of eat the same sorts of things every single morning. Oh yeah. And you know, I drink the same coffee and all of that. And um, I can be you know driving one of my kids to school and I'm looking at the monitor uh, and I'm like, okay, why am I shooting sky high? I did the <laughs> same thing I did yesterday, or vice versa. You know yes. why why am I why am I tanking right now yeah, when I exactly. did the same thing I did yesterday? So. <laughs> Uh, you know, obviously we know there's lots of other factors than just what you ate and how much you bolused. But, um, but, you know, so it, it can still be frustrating, but, I, but I do feel like now that I have the right diagnosis and mm-hmm. I have some tools uh, that I feel like are um, effective because I can see the results of those tools in in the data, both, both from, you know, those five minute readings I get from the CGM, but from the A1Cs and those sorts of things. Right. Um, then, then you you feel, I think it, you feel more empowered.
0: That's yeah. That, that dynamic between the trickiness and even fear, like you're talking about mixed with the kind of empowerment that you're talking about, that, that tension there is a lot of what I, I find so interesting about exploring these kinds of experiences because it's like both of those things at the same time and having yeah. both of these things that are on the surface contradictory happening at the same time really pulls you in all kinds of directions. It gets really, well, to, to reference you a second ago, it's really tricky. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you had mentioned that you were initially diagnosed in 2006. Yes. Is that right? So, uh, how did that initial diagnosis type two, correct? Uh, how did that initial diagnosis come about?
2: Well, um, so I had, um, so I grew up in Eastern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the Appalachian area of Kentucky. Uh, my hometown was kind of right on the border of Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia. Um, just to kind of give you some, some, some geographical, uh, uh sure. points, sure. <laughs> but, um, I had, um, a my uh, I'm adopted from my, by my father. So I grew up not knowing my biological father and I only mm-hmm. met him essentially in my adulthood. Um, and now, you know, we are, we're, we're pretty close and, and uh, we talk and those sorts of things. And, and at the time he had been diagnosed with diabetes. Okay. Uh, and so he was uh, uh, otherwise I didn't know a lot of that, the, the health family history. So I only knew diabetes as being something that was on my, on my mother's side because of the uncle I was talking about earlier. So then he was kind of in my ear about, you know, maybe you should, you should get checked out just to be sure. So I would have been, I guess, 25.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, you know, for, as far as I knew, you know, it was, uh, just a, an, a, an something to get the family out of my ear kind <laughs> yes. of thing. Um, uh, and so when I, I went to a doctor, uh, my my you know general practitioner, and um, she was really skeptical. Um, in fact, she didn't she didn't want to test me at all. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, strangely, I mean, she kind of made me feel like I was sort of like making
0: it up, kind of thing. Interesting.
2: And and so I I was, but I I although this it wasn't really my personality at the time. I stayed pretty persistent in the in the in the visit. Yeah. And was like, well, I just, I just want to be checked. I just want to, you know, uh, just just kind of know, just to make sure, just check it off, you know, the, the health list. And so um, so she left. I remember her leaving the room and telling me the nurse would be in. So she had the nurse come in and, and, and prick my finger. And the nurse was like, well, how you feeling? And I was like, oh, I feel great. And she said um, she could tell by my reaction that, like, I wasn't at least – I didn't think I was diabetic, you know, like I think she thought that I was like feeling bad and knew I was diabetic. And so therefore was like, hey, doc, can you you, can you check me and see where I'm at? And I think it dawned on her really quickly that like by my reaction, like, wait a second, this guy doesn't know he's got a problem. So she's like, "Uh, let me go get the doctor and the doctor comes back in like almost immediately and she i could tell she was just like a, a, a she's floored you know she's like so you're diabetic i was I, my reading was 405
0: Yowza, yeah
2: yeah which is you know that's that's pretty high that's pretty high uh, yeah in <laughs> and, and fact i'm like man i was i'm lucky in a lot of ways because i've heard a lot of horror stories about people being diagnosed way 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 higher than that right and so and so uh, she, she just immediately jumped on type two. And I, I didn't know any better, uh, you, know, sure, on, sure. you know, and so yeah. uh, that's kind of, that was how I sort of got diagnosed. But, you know, as I was thinking about my, my journey over those years, um, I think a lot of it was I kind of sort of took for granted that initial diagnosis, never really questioned it. No one really uh, until right before we moved from Virginia to New York. No one had ever, that I recall, um, suggested that I see a endocrinologist,
0: hmm.
2: um, and I was never really in control most of the time. There were only really a, a couple of times where I felt like my readings were uh, regularly good. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I very first was diagnosed, I changed my diet,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh,
2: and I don't even remember it. You know, now what what I did. Um, but I, I, um, I think I, uh, went for about maybe six months and, and things were pretty good. Um, and then that, that went away. Yeah. Um, I was, I was back to out of control and was really mostly until actually right around the time that I was doing my dissertation at, at Purdue. Okay. So it would have been probably right around the time that we originally met. I had had some friends who, um, you know through the process you know that that those long hours of sitting behind the screen yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and you know sometimes it's kind of a lonely process and those sorts of things i was trying mm-hmm. to be proactive about my health at the time and so i was trying to um i was basically trying not to put on a lot of weight and and try to maintain some some level of health um in my mind yeah
0: um
2: or what what i thought was you know which is be-
0: legitimately difficult in grad school Frankly, yes. it's a, it's yeah it's it's a really difficult thing because you yeah. taught you're taught basically to prioritize the work over everything even when those things are basic life needs no All
2: absolutely right? and so I that's when I
0: was
2: I was just kind of reading and uh, I start, I started reading about like the low carb stuff the keto stuff uh, you know that that realm primal stuff um, and so I tried that for um, for most of the time that I was writing the dissertation and finishing that up. And again, I was, it was much easier to control for me. Um, But again, I still was, I still didn't have the correct diagnosis, Right. but it was better. It was better. Um, And I had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of support at in grad school, you know, as you, as you know, you don't, you don't make a whole lot uh, in grad school, you know, and we had three kids and, we lived on campus and, and I had, um, I had a very, very kind uh, nurse who would, who would let me know when she got um, samples of things in.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. That,
2: that I could use um, in terms of my medication and stuff. Um, but pretty quickly, originally, uh, when I was originally diagnosed, uh, I was put on metformin. Okay. yeah, I, I was on it for, for, I mean, until I was on that, that until I, I, I got the correct diagnosis. And, you know, gradually, you know, I remember being put on a, uh, a long-acting insulin, mm-hmm. still being told I was type 2. Um, when I moved to, like I said earlier, you know, when we moved to Virginia, I, I, you know, I just remember going and establishing myself at a practitioner and telling them I'm type 2. And it was, uh, it wasn't until, you know, we were there six years. It wasn't until right before we moved that the doctor kind of put the bug in my ear of, yeah, you know, I've been seeing you for six years. Um you're we think you're type two, but like nothing we've tried has worked. It, you know, we've we've tried Genuvia, we've tried metformin, we've tried yeah. uh yeah. insulin, we've we've tried it all. And by and large, I have been complete, you know, basically out of control. Um and so um he kind of put that in my ear.
0: And so this would have um, been around what year? Right before you move. So
2: that would, I left Virginia in 2019. And I remember having like, you know, one last sort of checkup, I think in that summer. Mm-hmm. So th- and then we moved to, to New York. Um, and again, like I said, that last, that last time I, I met with the doctor, that last appointment, he sort of put that bug. Well, maybe, maybe you, when you go and you transition to a new place and all that, maybe you should look into an endocrinologist.
0: Um. So that started almost what thirteen years after the initial diagnosis, and no one had ever suggested going to see an endocrinologist.
2: Not that I recall. That's wild. That's that's wild. So 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 when I when I came to New York, um, I again you know I needed to establish myself in a practice, Mm -hmm. and and so I went and saw a nurse practitioner, and uh, she walked in the door and asked me you know why I was here, and I said well, you know, I'm, I'm new to the area, but I'm type two diabetic. And, you know, I just want to, I'm sure at the time I was like, well, I just want to make sure I can get my prescriptions and, you know, do right. all that. And she said, well, what makes you think you're type two diabetic? And I said, I didn't have a good answer except for, well, that's what I was told in 2006, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm just, so I was like, well, that's what I was told. And she's like, yeah, I don't think that's true. And I'm like, you know, what are you, like the diabetes whisperer or something, you know? Um, so she's like, well, we can figure this out. I'll send you to an endocrinologist, and, and we'll do a couple of tests, and we'll know. Yeah. And, you know, that was, that was was um, that was good. That was positive, but also, like, kind of frustrating. Like, you know, what if I'm not type 2? What if I am type 1? And right. I've walked around all these years thinking that and being frustrated and being out of control you know, in terms of my, my, my blood sugars and, you know, you fear the kinds of damage that can, that can be done in the, those type of years. Yeah, um, for sure. And, and you know, sure. I mean, not to jump ahead too far, but, but um, I mean, there, there has been some, some, some damage that um, I've had to work on with my eyes uh, especially.
1: Mm.
2: Um mm-hmm. So so I go to so then she gives me this uh, referral and I go to the endocrinologist uh, again, meet with a nurse practitioner. They do some blood work, yada, yada. She walks in the door. Why are you here today? I'm type two diabetic. She says, well, what makes you think that? <laughs> <laughs> so I got the same exact reaction from both of these uh, NPs wow. and uh, and same thing. Well, I don't think that's true. I don't know what it was. I don't know if, you know, if, if, you know, if it was like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the, the diabetic patients they're normally used to seeing that have type two and, and sort of their perceptions of, of different things, body type, whatever, right, right. whatever it might be. There was some sort of uh, initial gut reaction that like, mm, that don't sound right. And so, yeah, she, she tested me and uh, did a couple of blood tests tests uh, and I'm going to forget what they were now, but they're pretty common. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, she's like, you're, you, you, uh, your body does produce a very tiny amount of insulin, but that's very likely to not last for ever. But um, so, so maybe, you know, I guess in hindsight, that's, that's sort of what kept me out of, uh, you know, ketoacidosis and all those things when I, you know, all those years ago, was that, you know, my body was producing some, some insulin, but, but uh, yeah. So, so um, from there, it was, it's, it's been night and day. Um, You know, the, the frustration, it's, it's not that it's not ever frustrating. It's it's still frustrating (laughs) from, from time to time. Like I said, you know, you do one thing one day, same exact thing the next day and you get completely different results. But the, the fears that I had um, you know especially being on insulin and the fears of hypos and those sorts of things you know especially at nighttime um, having the the pump and the 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 CGM um, as as tools and and I'll say that all of this new diagnosis was happening and me getting the tools the pump mm-hmm. and the CGM was you know, right around the time things were getting shut down because of the Corona uh, virus pandemic. Right. And so, you know, I, I was, I was teaching uh, online at the time and uh, I was staying home. So I had, I was very fortunate in a sense to have some time to really sit with uh, those devices and, and really kind of treat them as we're trained to do in grad school as, as sort of little experiments. Ah. You know, interesting and so I had you know data every five minutes about what my body was doing with X Y or Z kind of food and uh, you know I knew how much insulin I was giving myself for X Y or Z sort of food and and, um, and so I was able to um, be super tightly controlled during those moments during those months when I was at home yeah things got much trickier once things opened up. Again, and mm-hmm. I could, um, as you know, I, I coach youth sports, and so um, baseball, and so that got tricky again. Um, I learned a lot about my body and how it processes insulin and, and, and sugar and all those sorts of things as I would do the the most minuscule of, um, I hate to even call it physical activity, like, <laughs> yeah, like like putting yeah. yeah. the chalk lines down for you know a game or you know raking the field before and after a game and, and you know I, I i could just watch my blood sugar just tank and so i i had to i had to again experiment with um changing settings and stuff on my pump to to uh, compensate for that and um yeah so that's that's sort of the journey that i've been on so it, a lot of just uh frustration and and um you know worry about the long-term effects of of not being diagnosed correctly. Yeah. Initially.
0: Yeah, and that's a long time too. That's a that's a considerable amount of time, especially if you are f- fairly consistently high uh blood sugar throughout that period of time. Like you said, there are there are a lot of serious concerns in the short term, but also serious concerns for in in the long term. Um So one of the things about this, uh, kind of story that I find so fascinating, for one thing, uh, I, the, the like moment of re-diagnosis that that is, has got to be a wild time, um, especially since you had been operating under a certain understanding of what your body was doing at that, up, up until that point, um, and it was riddled with nothing but frustrations, like you're saying, in relation to the treatment. Yeah. Um. So how did, in those first, I mean, certainly first few weeks, I guess, but then kind of then thinking in a little bit longer periods of time out from there, how did your treatments, like the actual acts, the... Uh, the medicines that you were using, how did that change right then at that moment of diagnosis? And then uh, you know, how did that change over that the span of what is now about two years? Because yeah. certainly you wouldn't be able to just get a pump in that moment, right? right. But probably fairly quickly, um, but not, yeah. not that fast, right?
2: Well, I'll say maybe the strangest part of that process and, and that new diagnosis was I think most people you know, being told, look, you're, you're type one diabetic would be, there would be all of those original uh, feelings that I had when I was originally diagnosed as type two, the fear, being scared, the unknown, all of those things. I was relieved. I was like, finally, I I understand why this treatment, these treatments I've been doing for all these years or haven't, haven't really got me controlled. Yeah. I think they, you know, I was put on insulin. I was using Metformin. So, so I guess in a sort of, you know, kind of dark way, it it kept me from dying, but I sure, I I certainly wasn't feeling healthy. Um, And so I was relieved. Um, I I felt, I felt like I finally knew what, what the answer was in terms of what my diagnosis was, especially after having two experts tell me, you know, that they were skeptical
0: right so uh,
2: so the first in, in terms of treatment the very first thing was uh, you know the the realization that like insulin was going to be a, a part of my life forever
0: mm-hmm.
2: because when you're when you're at least listening to the sort of pop culture voices around type 2 uh, it feels uh, as though things are your fault a little more than maybe type mm-hmm. one and maybe there's a sort of hope that like, oh, if I do X, Y, or Z things where I I can get off these medicines and I can not have diabetes anymore. Right. But so, so type one, I guess in some ways for, for people may be more fearful, but again, I was, I was so sort of tired of not feeling well that, um, it was, it was, I guess a relief probably in some way to know that like, this wasn't something I had done to myself in terms of sort of pop culture around pop culture around, around the diagnosis. But it, I knew right away the realization of like the role that insulin was going to have in my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, originally you're right. I, I, the pump, you know, you go through the insurance process and all those sorts of things. And, and so I, I didn't have that right away. What I did have was um, I, I started on uh, a long acting insulin and insulin for, for bolusing. And it's funny because I, I, I remember again, as a child watching my uncle give himself insulin for a meal. Right. And I always wondered why. And I think I remember voicing this to, to to doctors, but maybe I didn't. I always remember uh, kind of wondering like, well, I understand that I'm on this one insulin because it's, it it stays in my system for, you know, 24 hour period or whatever. But like, how come I'm not giving myself like when I feel really bad is after I eat something that's like Carby. Yeah. You know, so like, why am I not, why am I not doing something for that? Right. You know, and, it, and I might, you know, I could check my sugar and, and, and I would come down eventually from eating whatever carby meal I had. Um, but, but it wasn't like I thought it should be, but I, did, right. I I guess I didn't, I didn't know enough to know really how to like articulate that question. But as soon as I had the new diagnosis, I mean that was solved, right? You take the long term, you you take your basil, you take, and then you bolus a certain amount for, for meals, and and so that's where I started. Sort of got into the sort of experimental mindset. I started reading a lot more about um, about type one, and you know how I can you know help myself with diet and those sorts of things.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so um, it started with uh, I think pens using sure. pens which I was already, like I said, I was already familiar with because I had been on a long acting basal. And so the adjustment at first was how to bolus for a meal. Um, and so I did that for a few months and in immediate, I mean, not actually immediately, but within, you know, the first, the next appointment, you know, check a one C and, you know, and even in that small time period, things are starting to, to get better. Mm -hmm. Um, and and then eventually, I mean it took it took a few months as I recall, but eventually I, I start um start the pump. And that was pretty daunting. Um yeah. and again, I yeah. was very lucky that I had more free time because things were shut down. Right. And so I could spend I could spend some time, a lot of time with it and learning the technology, but it was it was very daunting. I remember I had to had to drive. Uh, North of the capital district here. Uh, So probably 35 to 40 minutes from, from where we live. And that might've been one of the scariest rides home. You know, they, so they had hooked me up, they showed me how to use this device. And now it's like, all right, go home and, you know, like do all this. And I'm like, I just, I just like, am I going to, am I going to just like drop on the freeway, like driving home? You know, it was just, it, it was daunting. It, it was, it was scary again for, for a bit. Yeah. Uh, and, until I learned the technology and the ins and outs of it and felt comfortable with it. But at first I was exhilarated to have it, but then also like, now this thing is attached to me where before when I, w- when I thought I was type two and those sorts of things, it was, um, there's a kind of distance, you know, diabetes ah. for me is so weird because, you can't look, you can't really look at someone and unless you're my nurse practitioners, apparently, and and (laughs) tell that they have diabetes or not. It's not a, it's not a disease that's, that's visible. And so you can, you can, you can absolutely kind of ignore it. Yeah. And your body adjusts. And, and uh, in the moment, you know, you're, 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 you have high blood sugars and you're consistently high. You don't even know that you don't feel good. You may be sluggish. You may be, you know, uh, you may not actually feel good, but you don't really, you know, I didn't really realize that I, was, that I wasn't was feeling good until I started having things under control. And I'm like, Oh, so this is what feeling good's about. So, but so, so for, you know, by and large you can ignore it, but you get that technology and it's on your belt and it's right. on your, it's in your, you know, your, your, under your skin and, 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 you know, I go places and, you know, my, I, you know, like I said, I coach youth sports. Right. So those kids, they, the kids are like, what is that thing that keeps beeping or, you know, you know, they don't don't have a filter. Um, they just ask questions, which is awesome. Um, and so like it's, 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 it's attached there, you know, and and for for me, I think it's, it's been mostly good. I, I didn't grow up, uh, with it. And so like, I I understand there are folks who have a, a totally different kind of identity around that technology, but for me, you know, being an adult uh, when I was diagnosed and being so frustrated with not being able to control, control things before, for me, it's kind of just a constant reminder of being mindful of, of what I eat and, and how I treat myself and, and um, you know, those sorts of things. Um, it, it makes very visible what is very easy to think of as this kind of invisible disease.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, so that constant reminder of it, and it doesn't go away, especially when it's it is out front and center, right? It's it's attached somewhere, usually on the front of your body. There, and it's yeah. got to be you've got to pull it out to interact with it, and uh, that. So, one of the things that you keep kind of gesturing back toward is the way that you felt before the re diagnosis, and the way that you felt after, and you've mentioned how. It was kind of in hindsight that you realized how bad you actually felt throughout much of that time. And so, what did it, what did you feel like after this rediagnosis of type one and you started on these in- insulin regimes? What yeah. did it actually feel like um, to kind of exist now with this new, uh, new medicine, new medication that yeah. totally changes your relationship with your body, right?
2: Well, um, you mean, uh, you know, it, it sort of like having a certain level of blood sugar and sort of how that, that kind of makes you feel. And then, you know, you get in, in better control and feel different that sort of way. Or are you talking more like the emotional connection of that?
0: Well, I guess a little of both because, right, you, you mentioned that it, it was the contrast between how you felt physically, how your body felt. Uh, prior to this rediagnosis and after. And so there's that physical like feeling that itself is different. But then you've also then talked about how much of a relief it is. So it is certainly, uh, it's got to be this mental emotional yeah. connection with how your body's feeling too, right?
2: Yeah. I think, I think the biggest change with, um, especially after getting the, the monitor and the pump was the feeling of ha- being able to be an active agent in, in, what was going on with my body,
0: Hmm. you
2: know, knowing that like I felt sluggish and tired and those sorts of things. And uh, when I was way higher in range than I, than I really wanted to be and that sort of constant frustration uh, and then not really necessarily knowing until I was, you know, had better control that a lot of that, um, that, that, being tired and and sort of sluggish and those sorts of things was a direct result of the blood sugar. And I didn't really necessarily know that in the moment. Right. Um, And, and so like, you know, over the course of, uh, you know, at first, at least, you know, those first few weeks um, and, and doing the reading and those sorts of things and sort of monitoring diet and that sort of stuff, you know, just felt like, again, relief, but felt much more like I had some control over, uh, what was happening. Now, of course I know that now that I've been doing this for a couple of years with the pump and the CPM that yes, there are, there are times when you can still get frustrated and you can still feel like you're not in, you know, you don't have control, but like now, uh, you know, I can go grab, you know, um, a, a pizza and, um, And know that even if, uh, you know, it's some local shop and and I can't necessarily predict exactly the carb count, that I'll be able to utilize what I've learned about using the pump to get myself back in control pretty quickly. Yeah. It might be a couple hours, but we're not talking months and years anymore. Right. You know, or even days, you know, like I'm going to be able to – enjoy the food and, 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 and be able to get back, uh, to where I, to where I want to be in terms of my readings. Um, and I'll say that my body has changed in terms of now how I respond to different things. So for example, and this is very common as you know, but you know, if you're constantly at a certain range and then you start to come down into what's better ranges, you can feel those hypo effects, even if you're not actually hypo. Right. Um, so that happened for sure. And I, but I will say, as I've gotten better control, I am basically hypo unaware.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Which
2: is really weird. Um, and, and scary. Uh, but with the CGM, uh, you know, mostly working that that technology works for me and, and keeps me in the loop about what's happening. Um, I, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. My, you know, my wife, you know, she, she gets the, gets the, um, the beeps and all those sorts of things. You, you probably hooked up, uh, with those two, <laughs> you know, you get those, those alarms at 3am or whatever. She, she can sleep through anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and so like, thankfully it, you know, in those, you know, rare, but scary moments I've, I've been able to, you know, to, to wake up to those alarms. I have, a, I have an older son who's, who's 15, who, um, he uh, he, he's hooked up to, to the monitors as well. And so he knows um, he gets alerts on his phone too. Oh, wow. Um, So, so he's very, very uh, good about sort of um, checking in on me and making sure I'm, I'm treating if I need to treat and those sorts of things. So, you know, it definitely, it also, you know, obviously changed uh, a lot of the sort of family dynamic and those sorts of things. And Mm. um yeah. So I, you know, I guess the biggest kind of, um, now that I, I was, you know, sort of in control and feeling really good about things, you know, the biggest scare was the eyes. Um, you know, my, my NP suggested I get my eyes examined and there was some slight, uh, damage already from, uh, you know, I assume all those years of walking around with high blood sugars. Yeah. Thankfully after I've done those treatments. Um, and, um, for, you know, things have steadied out and, and it looks like I'm, I'm good to go so far, you know, so long as I continue to stay uh, in control. But I'd say in terms of real fearfulness, that's probably the only thing since, you know, utilizing these tools that have really has been kind of scary. And hmm. um, so I think yeah. just, again, just sort of being, feeling like I'm, I, I have some court sort of agency around the disease and can have some control and get things back where I want them to be be pretty quickly. I mean, the same, I think it's still, it's true. You know, even if I do go low, it's, I can, I can, I can much ease, much more easily control how quickly I come back. Um, I, I don't have to have that sort of rage, uh, <laughs> yeah. chug of, of, um, <laughs> juice or Coca-Cola or whatever, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. You know,
0: the entire I, I, jug of chocolate milk. <laughs> yeah.
2: And then and then you're dealing with the, the opposite roller coaster of that. I I right. can be because I, I have those five minute data points, because I know how to how to sort of hone in on, on the insulin and the, the and not having insulin and those sorts of things, I, I can even in those really scary moments of being low, I know like, okay, just give it a few minutes and I'll have it back to where I want it to be.
0: And being able to see it tracked through the CGM is a big deal in that regard, right? Because even if you were pricking your finger every, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, um, in those cases, which used to be the case, I mean, prior to CGMs, um, you know, I can speak in terms of uh, Melissa prior to when she got her CGM and she would have some of those scary lows, uh, we would be retesting and retesting what, what felt like very rapidly, but it's nowhere as rapid as what the CGM is showing. And the CGM uses these calculations to show trajectories, too. So if it shows that you're going up quickly, then you kind of take a breath, right? It, it, it feels different. Um, yep. Yep. And so, no, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm also really intrigued about this, the way that your family dynamic has changed in relation to this new treatment kind of system that you're connected to as well. Cause you mentioned that, that your wife has the Dexcom, I'm assuming it's the Dexcom, right? Yeah. Uh, the Dexcom yeah. app on her phone, but your son does too. And that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, like how, first of all, how did that kind of come about that he also is connected to this thing? How? With, like what was yeah. the conversation there? And
2: Well, I think, I think, I mean, originally it was, Um, because, you know, my wife, Sarah was sleeping through (laughs) some of those, (laughs) so, you know, I would wake up, I would treat myself or whatever. And then like the next morning I would be like, man, that was a, that was a wild couple of, you know, a few minutes or whatever. And she'd be like, what are are you talking about? (laughs)
0: What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Like, you don't remember me trying to wake you up and tell you, you know, so, so I I'm lucky that my, you know, um especially my oldest son is, uh, Dylan is, is pretty techie kid. Yeah. And so like, you know, he, he kind of invested pretty quick in, in the idea of, of like of being connected to it. And, you know, I'll even get texts during the day if I've, if I've eaten something or, or, uh, if he's gotten alert at school uh, and that sort of stuff, he'll, he'll wow, send yeah. me a text. Hey dad, are you, are you, te- are you testing? So I think one of the things that you know, all at least, you know, I was, I was diagnosed, I think it was like four days after he was born.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: like, he's always known and all, you know, all three of our, our kids have always known that I have diabetes, but again, you know, for all those years, it was like, Oh yeah, that has diabetes. And it was like, not
0: kind of real, not present anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: And so that changed, you know, I, I remember when we, when we, when I was first diagnosed and first knew I was getting a pump, I, I got on, uh, I got online and, and ordered, um, you can buy these little Velcro pumps for like baby dolls. Oh yeah, that looks like a little uh, T-Slim pump. And uh, so I bought one of those and had it and like had a baby doll shipped um, for for our daughter. She was into baby dolls at the time, so so like that that was sort of a normal part of like how some people have to live. And so you know they're they're much more. The kids are 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 now much more conscious of. And and well, really the whole family of, Mm -hmm. you know, the constant that, that this is a, like you said, sort of a a present thing for me, you know, at first there was a lot of, of hesitation, you know, like, can I, can I still wrestle with dad? Can I still like run up and give him a hug, you know, for fear of pulling out the pump or, you know, hitting the monitor. Yeah. Um, and so you know, we tried to sort of, like with the baby doll thing, and just just sort of like help them to kind of like treat me, you know, normally I suppose as what they were, you know, typically what they were used to, right? Um, but being being cautious and those sorts of things, um, I I do I check them uh, every month. I, I have them check their prick their finger and check their sugar, and um, so. It, it is a, uh it's a presence in in their lives um in a way that it wasn't before you know that's it really interesting super super real for them before um yeah. but it's but you know um i don't have any and maybe this was a, a again a product of being um you know an older adult when i when i got the pump and those sorts of things but i'm not self-conscious about it at all and so um like everyone in my, my students you know, at the university, my, mm-hmm. my, my kids on the, on the ball teams, uh, my colleagues, you know, that help run the little league and those sorts of things. Everybody knows, everybody knows what the pump is. I, I answered the questions and, you know, I, I tell my, my students in a lighthearted way, what it is, why it beeps during class, Right. I, you know, if I, if I'm checking my watch, which, you know, I get readings on, I, I'm not, you know, It's not because I checking
0: emails or (laughs) it's
2: not, it's not that their answers are boring or, you know, uh, (laughs) can we get out of here already? Ugh. (laughs) Yeah. So, so they, I think they know that, that it's, um, it's a presence and, you know, and and from time to time I'll run into a student who's like, Hey, is that a pump? You know, or, or, you know, they, or, or you can see if they were their CGM, you know, in a visible way that, you know, uh, last summer I taught a course, um, Around Appalachian culture here at Siena with my colleague Todd Snyder. And there was a student in that class that had a pump and a monitor and she was, you know, sort of excited that
0: Hey, you, me, we've it's like that (laughs) Spider-Man meme, right? Where they're
2: both (laughs) Exactly. So so yeah, it definitely has a a kind of presence. Um it's so visible. And I and I don't I don't try to hide it in any way. Um and so it just is kind of a regular part of the conversation, and we have this conversation at the beginning of the semester, like we like we would, and or we have it this conversation at the beginning of the baseball season, and it just. Coach Josh has to check his sugar. You know, it's just it is what it is.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, um, and I I very much kind of appreciate and am intrigued by the the way that this dynamic between. The, the kind of presence of diabetes and these devices is happening at the same time as you feeling a lot better and the, the, the lack of presence of diabetes prior to this rediagnosis and feeling pretty crappy, right? And that, that whole kind of dynamic between these two moments. But, I say moments, but that's not even <laughs> an accurate depiction yeah. of what is a, a many, many year, kind of experience. And so it's really fascinating. Um, well, uh, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show and joining us talking through a lot of these experiences with misdiagnosis and what that experience has been like since the re-diagnosis. Um, it's been a really fruitful conversation and uh, thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you having me.
0: Okay. So that conversation with Josh uh, was really, for one thing, that was kind of a fun conversation. Yeah. Uh, not, not a whole lot of fun like material that we were talking through. But uh, one thing that I think kind of came through a little bit, and he made a couple of gestures toward this, um, he and I have known each other for quite a while, even though we haven't actually seen each other in a long time. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, it's uh, we met about 10 years ago. And um, so it was good to have a chance to kind of uh, see him, even virtually, to talk through some of these things. And I was surprised when the conversation started and he jumped right into a a reference to his budding obsession with cast iron.
1: (laughs) Steve gets a glow in his eye every time (laughs) anyone mentions it.
0: Because like, (laughs) I don't think we've really talked about this on the show. Oh no. Um, Here we go. (laughs) We're not going to go down that rabbit hole because uh, that's not what this is about. (laughs) Because uh, this is about bread and diabetes slash chronic illness, not cast iron. But (laughs) I really went down the cast iron rabbit hole. And uh, there was a period of time when I was Consistently checking all of the flea markets in town <laughs> and secondhand shops. You found some good stuff, though. Found some amazing pieces of cast iron, and we use them constantly mm-hmm. every day. I mean, that's basically what we use, except for eggs that we have a nonstick yeah. pan for, but pretty much everything else we use cast iron. So I was like, holy cow, this is awesome. And uh the, <laughs> I was kind of surprised. Yeah. But, um, I I was most intrigued, I think, by the the way that he talks through his really complicated relationship with diagnosis.
1: Yeah, seriously. I mean, we kind of talk about this a lot, um, yeah, because we're both so fascinated by diagnosis and diabetes in general obviously, with our connections to it. Um, But I always... It's always really interesting to hear people's response to their diagnosis because everybody's story is so different. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going... And I think what's most fascinating about it is we're all going through generally the same thing. Like, you're being told you have this... you, You are diabetic. And obviously everybody's story is so different and it's so fascinating that we can connect even Mm -hmm. though every story is so different. We can connect with some of the emotions and feelings, even though in what he was kind of saying in his relief of his, you know, second diagnosis, I guess you could call it (laughs) that relief of like finally figuring out that like all of this stuff that he was trying to do in order to take care of himself was just failing And I'm sure that really has an effect on your, you know, psychological well-being of, like, I'm just failing. I feel crappy. Mm -hmm. Like, anyone who's diabetic knows what it feels like to be high and that sick, horrible feeling of that (laughs) being high. And then feeling that all the time in a way that is all the time always. Yeah. Um is terrifying, you know, like that, because he was feeling like that so much that it, like you forget that that's bad, that you feel bad. It's like you're feeling terrible is your normal. So you don't even understand how bad you feel until you've come out of it.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, he was, he was right there in around this moment of kind of grad school and, some really intense career-related things going on in life. And uh, as he mentions there, that initial diagnosis with type 2 also happened, he said he thinks about four days after his first child was born.
1: Which is so nuts. Yes. Because (laughs) anybody who's had a child understands like the whirlwind that that already is.
0: (laughs) And so you're just layering whirlwinds all together. Right? It's like when, is it in Twister when the multiple tornadoes become one <laughs> giant
1: tornado? Twister. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs>
0: Dated reference. I know. <laughs>
1: who, who doesn't love Twister? Come on. I mean, the funny thing is,
0: <laughs> I, I'm i thinking about my students right now. Offhand <laughs> comment. Many of my students who are, you know, between 18 and 22, yeah, 3, 4, maybe pushing 25. I don't know if any of them might, may have seen Twister. That's oh, wild. Man.
1: That's a question you'll have to ask.
0: Maybe I will. <laughs> um, Tangent. <laughs> but it is interesting because he's not the first person that I've talked to, and this would have been in the context of some research interviews rather than with the show. Sure. Not the first person I've talked to who was experiencing this diagnosis at the nexus of kind of like, significant family changes and career changes. And, you know, the way that these things ramp up together is, is out of control. And so, uh, you know, on the, on the topic of this kind of complicated web of multiple diagnoses and what that means for his kind of general well-being and experiences and things, part of uh, how this whole interview even came to be is an interesting part of this story. I
1: love, I love this part. Like it's because, great. <laughs> yeah. I
0: mean, you know, two and a half years ago, I was posting a lot about bread making and, um, soon thereafter is when Melissa and I, uh, started the diabetic Instagram mm-hmm. account. Um, but I had been I mean, just baking constantly. I mean, at least once, sometimes twice, in some cases, three times a week, baking bread um, of various forms and and uh, sharing things, posting things. And he messaged me uh, basically saying, wow, I've seen all of this bread that you're making. It looks amazing. How are you like making and eating so much bread as a diabetic? This is wild. <laughs> and... I then, because uh, I had been also talking about my research and work and things. Um, and so I then was like, well, I'm actually not diabetic myself, but Melissa is. And, um, and so, but it's also part of my research, yada, yada. We had this kind of exchange. And I mentioned that Melissa was type one and he said, oh, I'm type two. And uh, so, yeah, this, uh, this interplay is really interesting. Conversation ends. This was December 2019. Right, And so layering that with the way that he was talking through this, Mm -hmm. this was clearly like right around the time when he was in Virginia and or then New York, when his doctor was saying, hey, maybe you ought to see an endocrinologist that then started the pathway to this other diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to (laughs) November of this past year when we started the show and we put up the first episodes and uh, they were starting to circulate a little bit among some of our already established like networks and things. People were listening and getting feedback. And I got a message from Josh who I hadn't talked to (laughs) in, you know, two and a half, three years. I guess it was almost three years there. And Uh, He was like, "Um, this is wild because (laughs) I'm listening to the new show. And I came in here to message you about it because I'm loving what you guys are doing here. And I see that my last message with you was talking about how (laughs) I was type 2. I can't eat bread. (laughs) I can't. Yeah, I can't really eat bread, or at least not a lot of it. Um, it, Right before this re-diagnosis. And so between our two sets of messages there is when this whole major shift in his relationship with diabetes happened. Um, and so I was like, we got to get you on the show then. This is so interesting. <laughs> and then, you know, life and everything happened for months. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Yeah. so I, it's really, I keep coming back to this, but it's just so great to hear other people's stories. And I love when Josh was talking about kind of his... I think it, it's complicated to talk about it when he, like, it was such a relief and, like, he talked about it being this freedom that he was finally yeah. able to give himself insulin for food that he ate and it, like, made sense and, like, being able to figure out what works for his body right. and, like, finally having this sort of almost a epiphany moment of your health, I guess. Yeah. You know? And what's so aggravating is to think about going to doctors for so long that i guess just have blind spots or whatever it is that causes this misdiagnosis to happen because it isn't that infrequent that it's happening right it's right. happening a lot to people mm-hmm. being misdiagnosed and obviously there's a lot of different factors um with diabetes that can go into this right, right. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah. your yeah. body can right. be kind of in the middle of things and you know, you catch someone on a bad day or from a bad decade, I guess, (laughs) because, wow, like that is sort of, you know, that really affects people's lives. And, you know, a simple blood test or a simple, like, acknowledgement of someone asking, can I get a blood test? You know, he talked about how this doctor is kind of like, well, why? Like,
0: I don't,
1: you know, (laughs) that's so frustrating to think about Obviously I'm not a doctor and I can't like pretend sure. to understand what it's like to right. treat all these people mm-hmm. every day in and out and you all I'm sure people are constantly thinking they have things or asking for tests or things like that but you know that's <laughs> Yeah. really affected his life you know he could have lost his vision completely or right. you know died people die from this of kind course. of stuff so yeah. It's just really fascinating
0: and, story. And it was 13 years before he was referred to an endocrinologist. Yeah. Right. That's, and that,
1: that's what's nuts to me. <laughs> it's like, ah, yeah, that's, 13 years.
0: That's a long time. Yeah. And part of it, the uh, you know, because I'm trying to kind of think through that. And part of it is that diagnoses of uh, type two are very widespread Mm -hmm. and there are not enough endocrinologists Mm -hmm. to be able to schedule out to see people as regularly as they probably need to be seen.
1: Yeah. I mean, even my doctor, I mean, she schedules out (laughs) two appointment cycles. So I'm like, I just went to her And already have, I had already scheduled two appointments out every three months, right? So, I mean, that's, we're looking into like nine months from now, and she's already starting to book out, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) you know, I guess we need more endocrinologists.
0: (laughs) Well, sure. But, you know, and and part of the problem is that they probably can't because of budget constraints. You can't just hire more people.
1: Oh, yeah. Right. And so,
0: and so they're, That's what's that's what's tricky here is that there are so many things constraining how and why this process played out the way that it did.
1: So many variables.
0: And so the fact that he went to this doctor that he had seen for six years in Virginia and had tried everything, they had tried everything and it wasn't working. Nothing was actually making him feel okay. And at that point, this doctor then was advising him and saying, listen, none of this has worked. We've got to get you like, to an endocrinologist. I think you should do that when you move because he was about to move. And there's this little moment of a read of this situation that was kind of an entry point towards this new diagnosis. But the fact that this, these other two doctors, like, first thing they, they did when they interacted with him were to like question, uh, not even question, but to engage him Mm -hmm. and his body and what was happening. Yeah. Right. Because he didn't say exactly whether he had made it clear to them that he had been trying all of these things and weren't working, but they had something in their experience that had this moment of, well, something, doesn't seem to be fitting right now. So let's explore a bit. And it led to this diagnosis that has changed absolutely everything for him yeah. in the last two years.
1: Yeah, I loved how he was talking about um kind of his kids and the sort of them growing up knowing about it. I love that he bought a little insulin pump oh, for man. the doll. Oh, so yes. cute. Um I and it's great that those things are being manufactured and um made because You know, it's making it more visible um, to his kids, you know, because it is kind of a weird thing. Obviously, our kids have grown up with my insulin pump and kind of know about it, but like to what level they understand that it's like putting medicine into my body. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like hard for them to compute, but they know and there is that sort of. Ah, oh, don't touch it like ah, oh, don't pull it you know because you are scared like please don't pull it out there it's constantly almost being pulled out yeah. by the kids you know and so I hadn't really thought about it as like you know as a little bit older kids you know can we wrestle can we play can we do all these things right you? that was a really interesting kind of moment of yeah I, and I think I, <laughs> I think one of the uh,
0: that gets to one of the things I was really intrigued by in the conversation too and that was when he brought up The fact that his 15-year-old is connected to his Dexcom.
1: (laughs) I think it's so great. And also, like, we often talk about, you know, parents kind of keeping track of their kids and being able to, like, see if they're going low. But I think it's so great that, like, his son is, you know, taking taking part of his life and his, you know, treatment. And, you know, (laughs) we kind of laughed... Because it's kind of reverse, I sleep through everything. He was talking about his so wife sleeps through everything. But I'm the one who sleeps through everything. And Steve's like waking, waking me up, being up. like, Are yes. you low? Are you low? Your thing's beeping. <laughs> hey, what's all that the time. saying? What's that saying? What's that saying?
0: <laughs> oh, and I get so
1: like I am a like I'm a deep sleeper. And so it was funny to kind of hear the reverse side of this as yeah. you know. <laughs> having this like crazy low story in the middle of the night and then having your partner be like, like, what? what? what, what <laughs> Which what is happened? probably how Steve feels about me. I'm like so low. I don't I remember I... anyway, but.
0: <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that's ever happened, but
1: uh, I usually lows kind usually of wake me up. I remember. Or but, I don't know. I'm like sweaty or something. Yeah. Like. I mean,
0: I certainly wake you up most of the time, but, uh, but then you're awake and you get it. But, anyway um, but you know the the that moment where he's talking about how his son is texting him from school to check in mm-hmm. and see if he's testing and things there you know it it points toward the way that his like diabetes but also then these treatment devices and the regimens involved in his injections and all these kinds of things are part of the family yep right it's not just about his own body itself but they're like they have a presence in the family
1: yeah we've talked about that a lot how having diabetes in your circle really becomes about everybody's experience within it yeah and i think that's i'm really fascinated with that we've talked about that a lot um we're going to be doing some interviews um as a segment of part of this of talking about how diabetes can kind of like be a story within the story of your family. Um, yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah, I love for that sure. he's involved his kids in this and
0: Yeah, and know. and then also it bridges many other of these kind of social relationships too. And so he's mm-hmm. talking about the way that he is Engaging his students in the yes.
1: classroom. <laughs> right. I love that too. It's so funny because I always think about it in reverse because I'm always the kid or the student and I have to yeah. tell the teacher about it. But it would be great to like have your teacher tell you about this. I love that he shares that with his classes and stuff.
0: Yeah, because like on the <laughs> on a practical level, it is true. If you're like pulling out your phone or <laughs> checking on your watch or this thing's just going off in the middle of class. Uh, students are going to be like, what? Like, what's what's happening right now? Like, this is an unusual scenario. Um, but uh, and and that also then plays out on the baseball field because yeah. he's then talking about these other spheres of his life, mm-hmm. right? And um, you know that that bridges a couple of other conversations there. I think in in throughout this brief interview, is fairly brief with him, but there were a lot of things that he covered. And one of the things that he pointed toward that I think was um, really uh, revelatory in some ways, because we talked about the way that he he discussed the feeling of relief from diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But he also, in some ways, was talking about the way that it totally changed his relationship with his body. Mm-hmm. Because I you'll remember he was talking about how... Uh, when he was on the insulin pump and before that, even with the pens and bolusing regularly, um, all of a sudden his blood sugar levels were down within ranges that have been more or less discussed as like in range, Mm -hmm. but he hadn't really lived in range for years. Yeah. And so, uh, the, the smallest little things he would would totally change everything and so you know he goes out and he runs the uh, the chalk lines on <laughs> the baseball field and dive bombs yep right um but he didn't feel it right and so this conversation about hypo unaware and i feel like we've opened this discussion mm-hmm. a little bit yeah with you but you've had that kind of experience yeah. as
1: well mm-hmm. yeah that feeling where you're all of a sudden really low because you didn't feel it coming or like you don't recognize the low until it's like really intense. Um, for me at least everybody's a little bit different, but, uh, that is kind (laughs) of, it's funny because we'll go outside. We were talking about this when, uh, we were listening to Josh's interview again, before we recorded, Mm -hmm. um, just talking about the weird things like you know, we'll go outside to work in the garden and we're out there for five minutes in the humid heat and I am like passing out. <laughs> done. <laughs> like, done. I'm like, I cannot function. Anymore. Yes, <laughs> I think the humidity has a lot to do with that. But it's just interesting hearing, yeah, the relationship with your body and figuring out, you know, after so long, being high for so long and then being at normal levels feels like you're low because yeah. you're so used to the way you feel high, and that even happens short term. You know, like in yeah. a, everyday mm-hmm. um, treatment. But for sure, it was really interesting to hear that.
0: And so there's this like complex interplay between the relief of like feeling good for the first time in years, and mm-hmm. he, hearing him talk about that's like it's it's a a like shocking kind of experience because it's like he didn't even realize that he wasn't feeling well he knew that he wasn't feeling great yeah um but it wasn't until he was feeling better that he was like holy crap i've been feeling crappy for over a decade this is out of control right yeah This this is wild and the second thing that that really stood out there um was the way that he was talking about diabetes visibility yeah right because um Diabetes is a chronic illness that is not outwardly visible, right? There are ways that it has been
1: stigmatized (laughs) and
0: produced to supposedly be able to be represented outwardly, but those are problematic. And we've talked through those with Mm -hmm. previous guests and things as well, but it was not visible to him and his family really for the entire span between Mm -hmm. his initial diagnosis and Rediagnosis, um, and was, like, not good. Like, it was kind of crappy in mm-hmm. general.
1: Just the constant feeling of, like, failing and not being able, like, the frustration, you know, we've talked about the frustration of when you are, you know, mostly in control and then not having, being able to keep the control, right? Like, mm-hmm. those highs that won't stop coming and, like, right. There's just, it's constant. We, you know, as a diabetic, it's constantly changing. Every, your body is constantly changing. Every year, your body changes, right? Mm-hmm. Every, <laughs> constantly, every,
0: all the time. You know, yeah. depending
1: on what stresses are in your life or what experiences are in your life, it's mm-hmm. constantly changing. And, you know, so it's really interesting to kind of talk about things after you know, you've analyzed this time frame. But, yeah. you know, when you're in it, living it, you know, he lived that for so those so many years of just turmoil, you know. So I can understand how that diagnosis then would be such a relief to such finally have, relief. you know, which is kind of counterintuitive to yeah. think like diabetes. I think he kind of mentioned that, mm-hmm. like it kind of seems weird that, that I was relieved at the diagnosis because usually it's like this whole... Kind of, you know, new thing that you're like, yeah, totally it's like you just Slammed into a brick wall, like what? <laughs> like, yeah, let's reframe everything about my existence in my life. Um, so it's really f- fascinating to hear kind of this different viewpoint of it.
0: Yeah, and with these new devices, because he talks uh, towards the end there that mm-hmm. the insulin pump and CGM. Have become central, like parts of himself, his life, his family. Mm-hmm. And so, what that means is that his diabetes is also visible now. Yeah. These devices make it visible, it is present
1: mm-hmm.
0: outwardly to the people around him, family, and otherwise. Yeah. And so it really kind of adds some interesting dynamics. Yeah, I loved,
1: I did he say, I loved how he said, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not like embarrassed of it. Like it's here, it's part of me, it's who I am. Right. I share it with people. And I think that's. I think that's kind of the hope that a lot of people have is that like we can do that more and feel that more and feel more comfortable like sharing and, you know, talking about it and talking through experiences, right? and feelings because not everybody feels that way right and that's fine you know some people are more self-conscious some people don't want you know there's so many different stories and I think that's a lot of why we're here right yeah to talk about stories and people's experiences and what diabetes means to them and what diabetes as like an experience and a life is
0: (laughs) So that wraps up this episode. Um, another thank you to Dr. Josh Iddings for joining us and uh, facilitating such an important conversation.
1: Thanks for being with us. Subscribe and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram. Message us. We'd love to hear your story. Um, if you want to be on the podcast, of course, um, contact us.
0: Certainly. And if you have ideas for topics that you would like to hear, please. Um, We probably also know some other folks that would be great to come and talk about some of those things. So let us know.